Jody Butts. Welcome to the 2020 Network presented by Interact. All politics are local and so is public health. We're coming out of an intensely locally focused period as we take our first baby steps out of our homes, if we're lucky enough to have one, and we look out at the broader world. What do we see? Is it transformed or is it a more exaggerated version of its former self? Do we have new hopes and dreams for our children in a transformed world? Our border remains closed except to essential traffic with the United States until June 21st. How do we view our cherished neighbor to the south and what do its recent fortunes mean to Canada and the rest of the world? To discuss these questions and more, I'm joined today by Ben Rhodes. Ben is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The World As It Is, a contributor for NBC News, MSNBC and Crooked Media, the co-chair of National Security Action and an advisor to former President Barack Obama. Thanks for joining me, Ben. Good to be with you. Okay, well, let's get to it. Um, is America broken or does it just have a bad president, Ben? <laughs> um, I, I, look, I, I think it's, it's uh, pretty broken, to tell you the truth. Um, I mean, it, it, you know, when you have an event like this, it, it kind of exposes, you know, the areas where uh, there's been a steady degradation. And, and obviously the most acute challenges having a, an incompetent uh, and dangerous president. Um, but underneath that, you can tell that there, there are problems in our media culture where you have, you know, Fox News and huge, you know, sprawling right-wing outlets essentially feeding people disinformation about this virus. You know, there are problems in kind of our national and social cohesion when you have people with AR-15 weapons, you know, walking into government buildings. Uh, so, so, you know, I, I think what you're seeing here is the, the result of, you know, many years of attacks on the legitimacy of government, of expertise, of science. And Trump is the clearest manifestation of that. Uh, but it, I think it does speak to something broader that's a little broken down here. So, you know, I think when you th when you think about COVID-19, it's it's an accelerator of trends. I mean, I think that's one thing in common since I've started speaking with people about COVID's impact that they've um, observed uh, versus being um, terribly efficient at starting new trends. And it seems like America is in this um, conflict between its sense of decency and the meanness of its politics. What wins out? Well, you know, what's interesting to me about this, I, I've thought a lot about this question in my own life experience of the last four years. You know, what's interesting to me is the extent to which, you know, if you're in if you're in your community, um, there is not a sense of meanness. You know, I mean, and, and sure, I'm on my you know coastal bubble here in Los Angeles, California right now. But I mean, I, I travel the country and and, and, and you know, when people's direct contacts, um, it, you wouldn't know that we're in like a culture war here, you know. And and I say that as someone you know has family in my, uh, that that are Trump voters, but then our politics is obviously completely toxic. And then the online conversation um, is even worse. And, and and I feel like part of what's happened in America is like social media has in some ways kind of broken our collective brains, um, aided and abetted, frankly, by, uh, and again, this is a partisan view, but I think it's one that bears out, the, the this kind of right-wing media infrastructure of Fox and of talk radio that is amplifying and pouring gasoline on the same fires that are on social media. And so you get this kind of political conversation 
particularly on the right, that is increasingly conspiracy theory minded, that is increasingly vitriolic, that is always us versus them. And then you have on the left, I think, a reaction to that. Um, and so you have a situation in the country where um, the, 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 any discussion of politics uh, is completely, um, you know, is completely toxic. Whereas, you know, I don't think that's the case, you know, the, the lived experience of people in most communities. Yeah, for sure. That's my own personal experience. I have, you know, lots of friends and family in the United States and, you know, they're they obviously continue to be my friends and family, but in in other ways, America seems totally unrecognizable to me. You know, I grew up on the Windsor Detroit border, so I've been, you know, looking to America, at America, watching its television, consuming all of its media. Um, and yet, you know, when I look at the United States response to COVID, it's really unrecognizable to me because the number one thing, the, the thread that has woven through everything has been, you know, excellence and ambitiousness. And I love that about America, but the response has seemed really unambitious. Like, yeah, you know, we may lose 60,000, 70,000, maybe a hundred thousand people, but the economy, what's happening there? Where, where, where's the disconnect? I mean, I, um, you're right. And, and I think, and first of all, I think most Americans don't appreciate just, just what we look like. <laughs> um, you know, I travel a lot, uh, and outside the country, not anymore, obviously, but, um, even before COVID, um, you know, the view from, of America from the outside was not a pretty picture. And, you know, Americans live so inside this drama, this political drama, that there's a kind of normalization of Trump. There's a normalization of, the kind of extreme nature of speech uh, on the far right, a normalization of, of these kind of divisions and this kind of strange anti-government, anti-science, anti-expertise mindset that has snowballed into Trump here. Um, and, and so I don't think we realize just how, how far we've fallen um, in, in the eyes of others. And, you know, you're right that the, the underneath um, all the the politics, you know, one of the things that that America could be counted upon um, in many ways over many years is being, you know, at the cutting edge of a certain kind of innovation and a, a certain kind of um, entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship, not just in the private sector, but in 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 you know spheres like public health. Um, and I think what we were seeing in this COVID response is the degree to which you know, what had infected our politics has infected, again, other parts of our society um, and has, has basically, you know, um, and by the way, I don't think that should come as a surprise to people because there's a consequence to your elections. And we are a country that has had Donald Trump as president for three and a half years. And if that happens, you become, you know, more and more like the, the person you elect and the people you elect. And so I think in the same way that Trump kind of reflected some of the, you know, I think, uglier aspects of the last 10 or 20 years in our politics, um, the rise of, of a certain kind of paranoid right-wing mind, the rise of, of, of the right-wing media I've talked about, the kind of backlash to having a black president, um, the kind of xenophobia and anti-immigrant fervor um, that was stirred up on the right. Um, you know, if Trump kind of reflected that coming into the office, well, now, you know, uh, a lot of uh, American society is reflecting Trump. And, and I think that the 
the kind of the absurdity of saying it doesn't matter if you know hundred thousand people die, we had to reopen the economy is part of a broader um, and here I, I guess I'll, I'll, maybe I'm trying to put my own country on the couch a little too much um, resistance to owning up to what what we did in electing Trump. You know what I mean? Like it's it's hard to admit that that you did something that crazy. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm just trying to get inside the, the mind of a Trump supporter who might somewhere deep down know that that this is not the person you want in charge in a pandemic. But having to acknowledge that to yourself um, it means, I think, probably having to unpack a lot. <laughs> um, and so there's this kind of resistance to kind of admitting we have a problem, you know, um, and and therefore instead of admitting that we have a problem and trying to figure out what to do about it, it's like, oh, it's just the bad flu, and um, you know we got to get the economy open, and and it's only the liberals who want to wear masks and stay at home, and, and it's just easier for 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 a chunk of the country to put this into a culture war rather than to kind of deal, look in the mirror, and be like why did we ever elect someone like Trump in the first place? Yeah, it's really interesting you should say that because um, when I was preparing to speak with you, I was, you know, reviewing uh, your book again, The World As It Is. And, you know, you talk about how, you know, the truth has become meaningless. And, and you know, you, you make those comments in, in the context of the Benghazi hearing. But it made me ask myself, you know, so Americans you know, have lost some trust in their institutions. And when you think about that process of regaining trust, usually regaining trust involves, you know, a period of radical honesty. <laughs> and so I was like, what is the radical truth that that, that needs to be said? And, and it sounds like maybe you're saying is, is you know, we, we made a mistake with, with, with this president. But it also raises the question, who needs to say that? Like, you know, the Americans need to be on one side of the conversation, but but who 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 is able to deliver that radical truth for, for it to have optimal impact? Well, you know, there's a lot to say there. I think, you know, one of the things that, you know, I would argue is a lot of people spend a lot of money trying to make sure Americans lose faith in their institutions. You know, this is not like a, a, you know, just a convergence of accidents. There's been like a multi-decade attack on, on confidence in government from the right in this country, from a fairly small group of donors, um, you know, with basically fossil fuel industry donors and, and, and a few other places. Um, so let, let's, let's not act like this was just, uh, you know, nature here. Um, there's been a concerted effort to to erode public confidence in certainly institutions of governance, but also in science. You know, um, if you have a multi-decade effort, you know, aimed at convincing Americans that climate change is a hoax and the scientists are making up the data, um, is it that big a surprise that that there's a lot of people in this country who've been conditioned to not listen to scientists in the context of a pandemic? Um, so, so I do think that that there's a truth-telling that needs to happen about the structural uh, impulses for some of this craziness that we see. Um, because the kind of person who's strapping on an AR-15 and walking into a state capitol building is has had their mind really polluted for many years uh, with, I think, disinformation and, and propaganda. Um, to answer your question more directly, I, I think that, you know, the, that I, I, 
I'm not going to break. I'm not going to get through to those people. You know that the, the truth telling needs to happen at some point on the right end of our political spectrum from within the Republican Party. And and what's interesting is what's happened in the last three or four years is lots of people have stepped up and tried to do that. But the moment they do that, they kind of get slotted in our political media culture as as you know quote unquote never Trumpers, and then they're just kind of like you know, uh, unable to reach their own audience <laughs> on the right. It's a kind of peculiarity where somebody steps up and you're like, oh, this is great. Finally, a Republican is speaking up. And a week later, you know, they're lumped in with people like me, even though they're people that I, you know, disagreed with uh, about politics for, for for a long time. So for whatever reason, not, there, there hasn't been enough of a critical mass on the right side of the political spectrum um, to, to break through that dynamic where the, the dissidents on the right end just going to get slotted in with the rest of us and we're not breaking through to, to folks. And, and, and I, I, you know, I think it's going to take, I don't think that's going to happen until, until, unless and until Trump loses, um, uh, you know, cause there's too much of that party and too much of that infrastructure that is invested in, in perpetuating power. Um, and, and so I think it's a prerequisite to having this kind of reckoning that, uh, that, that he loses an election, uh, which is not a guarantee of course. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, you know, I often say that um, the best outcomes and the worst outcomes are team efforts. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's interesting to hear you talk about sort of all the different forces uh, that are in play. So when you think about it that way, it makes sense that it can't be a single person uh, or a single voice uh, that can, you know, uh, work and collaborate with with. Uh, Americans to to find um, another pathway. So yeah. what you know? So 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 what 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 gives you hope um, um, about the ability to to find this new path? Huh. Well, you know, what gives me hope is just generational attitudes in this country. You know, which is uh, essentially, you know, if you are under not just 25 or 30, if you're under like 50, you know, um, this is a much more progressive country, um, in a much more tolerant country, a much more inclusive country. Uh, the younger you are, um, the more likely that is. And, and by the way, I don't think it's just the normal dynamic where, you know, people start young and they're more progressive and then they get older and they become more conservative. Th there's evidence that that's not the case, but basically that, that there's a pretty structural realignment age-based, uh, you know, in part because of issues like climate change, in part because of the cultural milieu that, that young people have grown up in in this country, which is much more tolerant and inclusive. And, and that what we are dealing with in this country is kind of the last gasp of kind of an old white male patriarchal view of how America should function, kind of turbocharged by all the kind of money I talked about. Uh, their grievances stoked up by the Fox News of the world, and then Trump is their avatar, you know? And so, to me, America is going to end up at some point in a more progressive place. And, and this is kind of how I began and ended my, my book. You know, people ask me about, oh, what's it like to work for Obama for eight years and then hand off to Trump? And there's a lot I could say about that. But, but one of the things I will say is that, you know, America's got more than one story. We're a big, complex country, and we're a country that can produce a Barack Obama and a Donald Trump. I believe that the future of American politics and society is going to look more like Barack Obama than Donald Trump. That's that's the nature of our demographics. That's the nature of 
the views of younger people. But the question is, how much destruction is 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 wrought in between um, as we're dealing with this kind of gasp, last gasp of um, you know uh, of the Donald Trumps of the world? Um, and, and already, I think they've done an irre- irreversible damage to certainly America's standing in the world um, and and how we're looked at in the world. I think Americans don't fully appreciate that we're not ever going to get back um, um, quite. The, the standing we had before we showed that we could do this, and by this I mean Trump and COVID and all of it. Um, but again, what gives me hope is I think on the other end of this, you know, rocky ocean that we're in, um, there is uh, a, an America that looks more like the America I felt I was a part of for those eight years of the Obama administration. Uh, but but you know, we have to get there first. Yeah. So in the Atlantic in in April, you wrote. Now, as COVID-19 has transformed the way that Americans live and threatens to claim exponentially more lives than any terrorist has, it is time to finally end the chapter of our history that began on September 11th, 2001. It raised the question for me, you know, how do chapters in history end? And I think one of the things you're saying is, is some of it is a generational swamp, right? That the that, that new ideals um, become the, the, the majority. Um, but yeah, you do worry about, you know, um, uh, how much degradation can institutions take? Um, will they be there in a robust enough form for new generations to, to you know, be able to take advantage you know, you just look at the, what, what's happened to the sidelining of the CDC. I, I mean, I, I could pick so many examples, but, but but that one just seems timely. You're like, you know, some really terrible things uh, can happen in, in the interim. So so you have to, I can't, I, I can't help it. I'm like, how do we accelerate this? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and, and to me, this is a good example because, you know, uh, the, the Obama, one of the, the, the highlights of the Obama I think kind of foreign policy record was the Ebola response where, you know, the U S basically was the captain of an international team that went to Africa and stamped out the outbreak and the CDC and the NIH, the national institutes of health performed exceptionally well in that context. It's four years later and they're hollowed out, you know, the, the damage that has been done to those institutions. When I look at how they performed in Ebola and how they're performing now, you see just how far, far things can fall. Um, the other side of that coin, to, to get back to, to the Atlantic article, is, it, it, okay, if you can find a silver lining in this, it's that when something like this kind of comes through like a hurricane and blows out all the debris, there is an opportunity to build back different. And one of the failings of America over the last 20 years, I think, is the entire response to 9-11. And this, you know, everything from the Iraq War and the spending of trillions of dollars in Iraq and Afghanistan that could have been invested in other things to how we made our, you know, kind of our entire national purpose about terrorism for a period of time. And I fault the Obama administration and my, you know, my own, uh, uh, you know, national security team for not kind of doing more to, to end that, you know, we, we were certainly trying, but, um, you know, this, this kind of, I, I think myopic focus on, on terrorism, when the whole, when the world is being redefined by technology and climate change and the rise of China, 
uh, and the rise of, of nationalism. And we're off in the Middle East, you know, um, fighting uh, a few thousand terrorists. Um, I don't mean to minimize the threat that terrorism can pose because Canadians and Americans have both been hit by it, but it certainly doesn't merit trillions of dollars, right? And so that's an example where um, for all the degradation, all the concerns I have, okay, can we find the opportunity? Can the opportunity be that maybe we rethink our entire approach to national security and politics in a post-COVID reality? If, if there is a chance to start fresh, if there is an incoming Democratic administration, you know, um, what is the mix of picking up things that Obama was doing right, um, uh, rejecting, obviously, the things that Trump was doing wrong, but then what are the new elements of, of what a post-COVID America could be? Um, and I think, you know, you if you're engaged in politics in any way, you have to to, to be optimistic like that. Um, uh, and, and so that's, you know, one of the silver linings that, that could could be presented by by this catastrophe. Uh, without question. And, you know, picking up on um, on those reflections about, you know, entering um, a new chapter, you, you wrote about how much harder it is to end wars than it is to escalate them. And it made me think about, you know, so you must have some really interesting reflections and, you know, for, this seems like too small of a way to describe it, but, you know, lessons learned, uh, you know, from your time in the White House and, and trying to, um, you know, start this, this new chapter in American history. Here we are, you know, it's very easy to put a country into lockdown. It's much harder to take it out of lockdown. Um, what, what, what are your lessons learned that, that, that you would, you know, share, uh, with the world as they try and undo something that they've done? Mm, yeah, it's a really good question. I, um, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, I, 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 I I can't help but find myself thinking at times, you know, well, what would Obama be doing if he was president now? You know, and um, in terms of just opening up from the lockdown and then and then the broader question, I mean, in terms of opening up from the lockdown, what's remarkable here is that um, there's this focus from Trump, you know, clearly what he's consumed with is is the views of CEOs and the and the stock market and, and, and not at all people, right? And and if you're thinking about anything around reopening, you would almost map out, I mean, I, you know, who has been most impacted by this crisis? You know, who is suffering the most? Who has the most at stake here? And you build your response around that. So um, how are we going to get more support for frontline healthcare workers uh, to ease the burden on them as this is going to continue and perhaps flare up uh, again and again? Um, how are we going to uh, walk the American people through, you know, the, what this process is. Here's what might happen. You know, here's uh, what you need to be concerned about. Uh, here's the honest truth about timelines on vaccines and, and, and kind of telling people the story about the different things that could happen so that they're prepared for it. Um, and, and then again, looking at, okay, who's most vulnerable here? Uh, who's lost their job that is least likely to get it back, you know, and what can we do for them? And 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 so you know, your 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 reopening of the country is something that you're you're walking the entire country through the process of it, and you're 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 fo most focused on the people who've been the most hurt, and, and that's who you're trying to help um, from from the bottom up. Um, in part, by the way, I should say because top down approaches 
um, can create really uh, difficult wounds in society to heal. Um, you know, the financial crisis, uh, you know, the, the people bailed out at the beginning in this country were the banks. And that broke something in, in our, our politics that, that never really healed, you know. Um, and frankly, weirdly led to Trump, right, because people felt like that the, the institutions of government um, were not responding to, to anybody but the rich and powerful. So everybody's corrupt, you know, so I might as well go with a, a Trump. Um, so that, that's a bit of a tangent there. But so I, I think the, the process of reopening, you know, uh, you know that that's how I'd, I I look at that. The the lessons learned about how do you try to kind of reset the the narrative of a country um, in a in a time period. Um, you know I I think the you you try to identify like what is the the the, the opportunity in this? What is the um, what what can be done differently and better? coming out of this and, and, and have that be the, 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 the core of your kind of message, you know? So, so for Obama coming out of the financial crisis, which was a, uh, an event that wreaked havoc and we stepped in after a lot of those bank bailouts, uh, took place, we, we ended up having to own, own them, unfortunately. But I mean, you know, his vision for, okay, we've been through this incredibly disruptive event. Um, and let's build back the kind of economy where, more Americans have access to healthcare, and we're developing cleaner forms of energy, um, and and, le and and you know leaving behind coal and other forms of energy that were dirty, um, and you know and so he was kind of trying to sketch out um, an economy and society where post financial crisis America could be, could be kind of a bridge to a different kind of economy um, and a different kind of social safety net, um, and frankly did a lot of good, um, you know. Uh, to, to reach that place, um, you know, Trump is is gone, been spending as much time as he can trying to dismantle that. But, 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 so that's uh, you know, you, you, there's the initial task of reopening how you walk the nation through that, how you care for the most vulnerable, and then there's this question of okay, how can I sketch out the ways in which we can uh, be on the other side of this and 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 take advantage of the opportunity to 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 heal some social divisions and 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 have a different kind of economy that is more suited to the the time we're in. Yeah, I think, you know, some definitive goal setting would really be welcome. And I, and I say this for all countries. It's not it's not just uh, the United States. I think um, we've, you know, uh, entered into a bit of a reactive mode uh, to COVID. But when we think about um, coming out and maybe having to go back into lockdown for a period of time and then coming out again, I think we would all be really well served um, by some clear goal setting and for sure taking care of the most vulnerable has to be part of that. Um, I think the other, the, the other thing you said, just going back to, to an earlier comment, I, I think, I think we're, we're inherently optimistic in the same way that we love to touch our faces and to be with other people. And that's why this has been such a, a challenging period. And, you know, when, when I think about, you know, what, what's going to, what is happening uh, to the world order as the United States goes through um, this difficult period. It, what I worry most about is that lack of American optimism, that, that can-do attitude, um, you know, in the face of, of difficult challenges. So, um, you know, drawing upon your, your foreign policy expertise, what, what do you see as happening 
to the the new world order and and you know just as you know we're all just everyday citizens here you know as well like what what what, what should we be looking for well you know i, I think you you put your finger on it in the sense that the, the the vacuum of American absence is a defining characteristic of the world today, and you know I often say to my friends on the left, and I'm I'm certainly on the left, um, you know who who can point out all the American foreign policy failures, um, having been in the middle of that uh, foreign policy infrastructure and world order for eight years. The problem is if America's not doing it, there, there's not somebody else who is. In other words, if you need collective action to solve a problem, if, if you need to kind of build coalitions to get things done, unfortunately for <laughs> for for, for uh, you know for all of us in the, the Trump age, th- th- this is not something that another country can do. Um, you know, when I, when it, when Ebola happened, uh, the, the WHO was slow and. The U.S. stepped in and said, you know, this is unacceptable and, and we're going to take this over, but, but work with you, the WHO, to deploy tens of thousands of healthcare workers um, to, to West Africa to stomp this disease out. And then, that, then everybody could pay into the, the pool, essentially, and get that done. Or when we wanted to get a Paris Agreement done, the United States kind of had to go around the world and grab each country by the shoulders and shake a commitment out of them, particularly when you're talking about China and India and others um, who are more resistant than Europeans. And so what I see now is America is totally absent from the world. And so, you know, the Europeans are, are, and, and, and Canadians and, and you know, some pockets of, you know, democratic, uh, globally minded countries like maybe South Korea are, are, are earnestly trying to to fill some of that void, but they, they just can't. They can't move. Uh, uh, they can't move collective action in the same way. And you know, China, you know, it can 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 offer some money and make some pledges here and there, but is going to be fundamentally self interested um, in, in, in how it approaches that. And, and so, what you're left with is is an inability of the world to marshal collective action, and this kind of growing nationalism that we see all over the world leads nations to be more competitive with each other and more suspicious of each other. And, and, and again, not that America was perfect, but if America was just operating normally right now, there'd be a much more collective effort to get a vaccine. With, there'd be a much more collective effort to harmonize things like guidelines around travel and when supply chains are going to resume. Um, that would just be the normal working of the international community. And, and, and without the U.S., it, that doesn't exist. And, and, and so I think if, if there's a change in administration, like I said, it's never going to go back to how it was. And I don't think, you know, America, this is not about being the dominant force in the world. It's just about being a force multiplier. And, and, and so my hope is that we can get back to a place where the United States is at least playing that kind of convening role to, 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 to marshal collective action on things like global health, on climate change. If not... If that's not the case, then I do just worry that we're in this drift towards increasing nationalism and you have basically, you know, China, Russia, Europe, uh, the U.S., uh, you know, these big powers kind of with different views of how the world should function, um, occasionally bumping into each other, occasionally cooperating with each other. A nation like Canada, you know, drafting in between Europe and the U.S. uh, in in this picture. Um, And that to me is not a good direction for the world. Um, uh, so my hope is that we can get back to some, some, some form of collective action. 
So before I let you go, I wanted to ask, you know, I think as Canadians, you know, uh, we don't want to tell Americans what to do. Like, that's not our way. We, we, we try to be a little bit more polite than that. And we, we like we like our choices to be respected. So we're going to respect others, other countries' choices. But how can we be a good friend and neighbor? Well, one of the things I appreciate about Canada over the last few years is you may not tell us what to do, but you kind of show us you know, what to do or, or what could be done. I mean, if you look at the response of uh, the Trudeau government and you know, Canadians across the spectrum, across, you know, across the country, it's, you know, it's not a perfect response, but it's perfect in comparison to what's happened down here. And the numbers bear that out. I mean, it, it's you cannot ignore the reality of how much more effectively this disease has been managed in Canada than in the United States. And so I do think, um, you know, uh, there's a there's a modeling of a certain kind of behavior and politics and 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 inclusivity that that I see when I look to Canada um, that that is important even if it's not Canadians telling us you know what to do um, uh, so that I think that is important I, and I also do think though that um, you know I have this scene in my book where uh, Obama tells Trudeau in their last meeting when he's president you know you should speak up more for certain values around the world um, I, I do think there's a voice for Canada, not in telling America what to do, but in in speaking up for just some basic, you know, basic fundamental values, because these values that you know have been that we've all taken for granted in both the U.S. and Canada um, are being very contested around the world these days. You know, basic things like you know the independence of the rule of law and basing decisions on science uh, and civil liberties. Um, these things are in question, you know, and and so I don't think Canada should try to be, you know, the country driving the discussion on all these things. But I think having a, a Canadian voice in the in the room um, is going to be is going to be very important because we need every voice we can get um, on behalf of of what I would you know say are the kind of liberal values. Um, and by liberal, I don't mean on the political spectrum, I mean just basically liberal democracy. Um, so I think Canada by showing and Canada by using its voice selectively, and in, 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 but in international forums, um, it would be important. Um, and, and look, I, I, <laughs> if Trump is reelected, then, then, then Canada may have to become a safe haven for a lot of Americans uh, who, who are fed up with, uh, with, with this. But, but I, we'll cross that We'll cross that bridge to the north when we come to it, if we come to it. Thank you so much for sharing your rich experiences, uh, for continuing to write about, you know, matters of fundamental importance and in general, just staying in the conversation when really it's never been more difficult or more toxic to stay in it. Yeah, it's it's, it's not it's not a. It's not the, the most rewarding thing I could have chosen to do when I left government, but uh, I'm glad I did. But it's great talking to you. I'm glad it's always good to, uh, to hear your voice, and I, I hope to, to be up north whenever travel permits. Well, we would love that. We, we, we would welcome you. Take care.